Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We have a big piece of new technology to make riding on the pave and having a romantic relationship with the pave easier. They're called mind gears. Mind gears. It is the changing of the gears. First you have the mechanical changing of the gears and then you have the electronics. And now, by the power only of the mind, you change gears. Therefore, you do not need to be placing the hands from the handlebars anywhere. You just use your power of the mind to change the gears. And Bonin already is trying it, but maybe not so successfully. It is in the early stages of development. So that could be a decisive factor. For the Paris-Roubaix and for Flanders next year, I think that the, the mind gears will be in production. I am talking to many people at the moment, but fundamentally... The difficult thing about mind gears is the rider has to have the power of telekinesis. And at the moment, there are not too many riders with telekinesis, but we keep looking. So who do you look at uh, as, as, who's uh, doing particularly well with this uh, new technology? Yeah, Cancellari does not like electric gears. And he, he said to me, Kenny, he said, I don't like electric gears. So I see, what is it, Fabian? What do you, what, how do we take it further? Huh? Because this year, uh, not winning Roubaix. He's not taking it. And he's disappointed. He said, Kenny, what do I do? And I say, hey, Fabian, next step is the mind gears. You come to bath with me, we have a little bath together in the Roman baths with the spa in the water, and we also read the papyrus scripts of the Romans who invented the bicycle. And then we have a conclusion. Huh? Yes, I think a lot of people might be surprised thinking of you as a traditionalist, an old-school kind of guy, but actually you're at the cutting edge of, of what's happening in, in, in bike racing. Yeah, I mean, now I, I have an Apple phone, and I send text to people. I still am using the fax, so I'm at the cutting edge of the technology. I prefer to use a computer with has no wires. This is incredible. It's a big advancement. And now with my new technology, I have a wind tunnel also in my shed in Gitz, outside my house. I have a special loft where people go and they prepare the root vegetables for the preparation for the classics. People come to Kenny because they know I am traditional, but at the same time, at the same moments, I am looking to the future. So the mind gears is possibly the biggest innovation in the cycling sport for many, 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 many decades, I think. Now, on with the rest of the podcast. Welcome to the podcast for issue 46 of Ruler magazine, which is um, coming to you from a cafe in the city of Bath. And uh, joining me to discuss this issue of the magazine is Matt Stevens making his debut in the magazine and in the podcast. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Matt Stevens is, and there can't be many of you um, in that position, he is a professional bike racer and also a very successful amateur bike racer. 
representing Great Britain at the Barcelona Olympics in 1992, was national road race champion in 1998, and rode professionally for the Linda McCartney team until its demise in 2001, um, and competed memorably in the Giro d'Italia in 2000. We maybe talk to talk about that um, a little bit later because this issue of um, Rulo, certainly the subscriber copy which we've got in front of us comes in a very um, it's a pink one uh, <laughs> very pink rather pink uh, hue on the front there more latterly Matt uh, rode for Sigma Sport uh, transitioning from rider to rider DS until a bad injury cut short your career at the age of uh, 41 actually okay. I say cut short it was it rather extended anyway I think I was uh, living each day by the seat of my pants but uh, yeah it was cut short unfortunately but uh, that's the nature of this sport isn't it how long do you think you could have kept on going I think as long as the enthusiasm was there and as long as I didn't um, I think the benchmark for me was keep enjoying riding and racing and not getting my head kicked in basically was the bottom line so as soon as I started to get dropped and was suffering beyond what I I ordinarily did I guess that was the point that I was going to stop but at that time I was still riding wasn't the best rider in the country by any stretch but I was still mixing it with the top guys and pulling out results from time to time and thoroughly enjoying it so that was enough for me so maybe another year maybe two although I've been a professional at the top level my my professional career was quite short relatively speaking so I raced a lot domestically so I never was really at a point where I was over raced and I never became jaded with the sport you know uh, so it was always fresh and interesting to me and I don't think I ever went too deep apart from in the Giro and I didn't have that year after year after year where you know um, I just kept enthusiastic I think that that's what drove me well now your enthusiasm is um, available for all to enjoy um, providing expert commentary in ITV4's coverage of British road racing and also live commentary and punditry for Eurosport. Your media career is uh, is taking off very rapidly. Yeah, it's. Um, I quit, as a lot of people know. Uh, I was a policeman for 13 years in the Cheshire Constabulary as well as racing and then latterly as a DS, as you've already touched on. And then for the couple of years before I retired, I was doing little, little bits in the media, a little bit of afternoon speaking, couple of bits of voiceover work for um, for Eurosport's coverage of British domestic racing but then this after the ITV stuff for the Tour of Britain and uh, my little um, on-screen duo with with Ned that was the opportunity for me to to I don't know get myself get myself out there and shown sent my CV to Eurosport who gave me the opportunity last year to commentate on a quite small race the Arctic Tour of Norway that went down really well and since then they've used me regularly and it's it's very exciting actually I'm really enjoying it I didn't expect it to have didn't expect to get this much traction so early on but I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it and hopefully people are enjoying my commentary because I just want to get across how interesting races are and, and also my enthusiasm as well because you know, I've been there and done it and I just want to tell people how, f- how fantastic it is it's as simple as that Is it something that you imagined yourself doing as, when you were racing? Not at all I just focused on racing you know um uh, racing, obviously, it's, it's an extremely finite career, pro, pro bike racing. And my career at the top level was cut short because the team folded. It was simple as that. But I was still very relatively young at 31. I needed something to pay the bills, so I joined the police. And I just raced to enjoy to enjoy things. And I didn't really have any any time to consider anything else. I thought, to be honest with you, the police was a... Was a well, the police is a career. It's not, it's not just a job. And um, I did see myself retiring at 55 and doing some gardening. I, that was pretty much it. But then um, when I, in my late 30s, early 40s, the, me, the media stuff just started to happen. I know the, the word organically is, is used 
bit of a cliche now, but that's what happened. It just sort of occurred, and I'd enjoyed it, took to it, and, and here I am. So I certainly there's no plan for it to happen, and there was no plan for me to ever join the police either. I've just reached certain junctions, junctions in my life, taking a decision which is taking me on a completely different path, and here I am talking to you about what I'm doing now, so it's, it's great. Well, let's turn to the piece that you've written for um, this issue of the magazine, which is about lead-out trains. Yeah. It's, it's a great time for sprinting, isn't it, at the moment, at the, at the top level of the sport? It's incredible. As I think we touch, we touch on very briefly at the, the top of the piece a brief history of lead-out trains going back to the, the days of Cipollini and the psycho train in, in the... In the in the mid to late 90s and around that time of course Eric Zabel was there as well with, with Telecom um, and just the way sprinting has developed and is now essentially there were a few guys back in the day like Robin McEwen and Cav can do it as well who, who can you can get away with surfing the wheels but increasingly that isn't enough you know teams are essentially built around one rider you know you've got uh, Greipel Lotto Bellasol built around him you know Kittel but arguably, in Giant, that's one of the most unusual teams. They have a remarkable strength in depth in terms of sprinters. I mean, arguably the finest all-round sprinting team out there, with the likes of Degenkolb as well, who can, who can pick up wins themselves. And then you have, of course, Mark Cavendish, who's a Mega Farmer quick-step team, which is essentially built around him, but with remarkably talented sprinters backing him up. And, and I think they're the most preeminent teams out there. But it's, it, it is a fine art now, and teams you know, specifically dedicate time to, to working on their lead-outs because if you haven't got a lead-out, you're not going to win sprints. It's as simple as that, and some of the biggest races in the world are bunch of kicks, you know. Cavendish has obviously won the, won the Champs-Élysées four times in a row, arguably the pinnacle of, 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 of sprinting. So, yeah, it's a fine art, and I think we can trace that back. I mean, it's where it is now, probably, I think fundamentally, it came about as a part of the way that... Uh, HTC rallied around Mark and brought him to the finish and, and we see a lot of the team management from HTC and the riders now at Amiga Farmer Quickstep uh, and it's just a very very interesting time when you see years ago you'd primarily see one hour ahead at the front of the peloton whether that was super complex in the late 80s looking after John Paul Van Poppel for example but now in the finale of a big tour stage or, or, a, or a flat classic you know it's uh, a sprinter's classic, it's, you can have three, sometimes even four lead-out trains. I mean, I've got, not even mentioned FDJ with Arnaud de Mer. So it's an exciting time, but it is all about the lead-outs. It's fundamentally changed how, how riders approach the last 15, 20 kilometres of race. And uh, that's why most brakes are always doomed as well. <laughs> so it does go back a long way in terms of the, the, the distance from the finishing line, because I think it's easy to say, OK, well, you can see them really clearly in the um, in the very last you know three kilometers or something like that what's going on but actually it's going back to 20 kilometers and not just to catch the breakaway but it's also about positioning isn't it yeah I mean you can even trace it back earlier than that I mean if if you have a let, let's take a flat stage in a grand tour for example where you do there's a breakaway of three or four riders up the road by five or six minutes as well as the team for the yellow jersey who will ride from kil- kilometer zero the gap will normally go out, then the yellow jersey team will ride. But normally it's then taken up by teams with an interest of bringing the brake back. The yellow jersey team, for example, collect the brake, stay away. There's no threat to the overall. But then the reins are taken up by the other teams. So as early on as 60, 70 kilometres to go, you'll get one or two riders from key sprint teams keeping the tempo high, gradually reading it in before then the big hitters come to the front. But I think even over the last couple of years, the lead-out, the essentially the lead-out in terms of trains is, is coming later and later and later because of how stressful 
physically and psychologically is on the riders who form part of the lead out and so it's important that every single rider is available and ready and therefore right teams are now committing later and later and later and I think that's why you're seeing some of the finishes are more dangerous because teams are trying to get to the front all at the same time so I think even in although we're saying the lead outs has changed fundamentally since HTC the last couple of years have seen it, seen it change again uh, incrementally uh, as teams are looking to get that edge and I think the ultimate edge is, is about power and space and leaving it as late as possible to get to the front. How would you go about putting together a, a successful lead out team? What are, the, what are the key ingredients? What have you got to have and what can make it go wrong? If you look at the, uh, the makeup of all the major lead-out trains now, um, although there's some young guys coming through, generally the best lead-out trains have guys who are, who are calm and who are experienced and who have sprinted at the highest level themselves, so they know what it's like in the last few kilometres dealing with uh, difficult, stressful situations. And as Mark has often said in, in his numerous interviews, it's about, and as Kelly often says, it's about making the calculation, it's, about, it's, it's distilling the sprint down to its, to its component parts, basically. And, um, and it's about reaction times, it's about making decisions on the road, decisions that most people would, would struggle to make if they were sat down in a comfortable chair. And these are decisions when you know, you're riding at threshold, putting out 1,000 watts. They're decisions that most ordinary people would struggle to make. So I think the ability to make decisions in extremely stressful situations and also being and having an immense amount of power so what, <laughs> are, those, fundamental. what are those decisions that they're making on the, on the hoop the decisions are, you know are things firstly first and foremost on the day of a race you check that everybody's you know up and running and is, is in good working order and that can change out on the road you know if you're going to have a if you've got a planned lead out based on a particular parkour a particular finish you've identified okay today for example is a finish for cav this is the way we're going to do it here's a video of the finish via, via google street view or it's a finish that we know before factor in weather conditions, wind direction, and then you know exactly you know, where you're going to lead out, whether you're going to go from the left-hand side of the road, the right-hand side of the road. And obviously, you know the other riders that are on form as well, and, and you know from looking at previous race results, looking at previous race footage, when other lead-out trains start to come to the fore, you'd have to factor into that as well, who's on form with the particular teams and when to look out for the other lead-out trains coming. But, but what Mark and, and, and when, when I spoke to Stiegmans, Gert Stiegmans, and Alessandro Pataki said, it's, although you have to be, there has to be an awareness of other teams, you need to focus on what, on what your job is, because if you start to think about other things, that's when you start to lose concentration. I keep using quotes from Mark, because imp- I think it's, it's vitally important that it's, although it's about speed, it's about a smooth speed as well. It's about trying to create space um, when sometimes there isn't any. Um, and it's trusting your, uh, your fellow riders as well, so there must be an, an innate and an innate trust that Mark has with, with, with Renshaw, with Stevens, with, with Pataki uh, and the other guys that, that lead him out. But that takes time. You know, it isn't something that can happen immediately. I could assemble a team. You give me, you know, a, I don't know, 10 million, 12 million euro budget. I could pull together a team. But it would take probably six months, even a year to properly gel. The riders might know each other, but they, having never worked together, um, you need to work on it. So you, you'll see teams practicing lead-out trains on training camps now. You know, they'll, they'll do proper drills with 200-metre um, sort of demarcations and repeatedly, you know, uh, drill. And, and that's what teams do now. It's drill after drill after drill. And is the green jersey still the sprinter's jersey? Because it's sort of lost that connection a little bit, hasn't it, with the way that the intermediate sprints have worked, that a little bit like 
it's not the best climber in the tour or the Giro that wins the mountains um, well, classification. The... It's easy to criticise that sort of thing, although clearly it does make the race more interesting if you've got something going on during the during the during the the, the dull kilometers we've got those intermediate sprints for me the green jersey is the sprinter's jersey and i think that's what race organizers want to try and see again is that it's about sprinters but i think having intermediate sprints and weighting the points slightly differently lends it towards sprinters having to sprint against each other not just at the finish which for the purest, perhaps, isn't what it's all about, but it certainly makes for interesting racing, especially as we've got more and more people coming into the sport and learning it for the first time. So it, it, I think it's about respecting tradition, but adapting as well to, to new audiences and keeping the, re- the races fresh. Well, we've held back on the regular opening feature of, um, of the podcast, which is the selection of favourite photographs or photo spreads from the magazine, and that's because both Matt and I have chosen photographs from the same story, which is the second half of Andy McGrath's feature on the junior peace race. Matt, tell us your, uh, your favourite photograph here. First off, I just think it's a, it's a great article. Um, it's evocative, evocative of uh, my days as a junior. I didn't ride the junior peace race, but I rode the peace race and, rode, and raced abroad as a junior for Great Britain. And um, let me just find that picture. I'm just flicking through here. It's the picture on page 98, and it's the Belgian team. Well, three members of the Belgian team. It's just a very simple picture of, of three of the young guys, all sort of 17 years of age, give or take, leaning against one of the team cars with their uh, respective injuries all to the lower leg. Um, one's got a bit of road rash, which looks, if I could probably date that, at about a week and a half old. One looks very, very new and is still uh, plastered. And another guy looks like he's got a bit of... It looks like a, he'd been ridden over, actually. Yeah. A, a, a rather yeah. nasty lateral wound above his sock line. Uh, but again, it just shows... Uh, I think it's just a wonderfully simple picture, which, you know, despite what those guys have gone through, they're still there racing um, in, in some quite difficult conditions as well because the peace race is notoriously hard, even at ju- junior level. And uh, they're certainly not pampered on that race as well. It's, uh, it's where you learn to ride a bike and you, and you just learn to become a person as well I think it's um, you go through a bit of a journey uh, as a youngster on these sorts of races the baptism of fire and I just think it's just it just reminds me of when I was young really and that's why I like it and, a tremendous <laughs> and photo- I fell off a lot <laughs> a tremendous photographs by Tim Kern the photographer and I'm going to choose the photographs probably at the other end of the spectrum from that um, which is this uh, archetypal cycle racing nut taking a photograph of the race with a Fasa Bortolo hat kind of askew on his on his head and a pair of colourful what looked like colourful homemade gloves and he's taking a photograph I just love the enthusiasm he's got some sort of army combat jacket on and a bandana around his neck um, and he's what do you reckon 40s probably 40s late uh, 40s. Late, late 40s early yeah. 50s but one of those guys uh, who you see typically at, at, at events all around the world, hang around the start-finish area with a camera, maybe a couple of cameras around the neck, uh, and generally a big, a, big vo- a big book or folder full of photographs and uh, postcards of team riders who it gets to, uh, uh, you get to sign. But 
those people, types of people, are part of the fabric, and I think that's what makes this sport so wonderfully weird at times. He does look a little bit alarming. He looks like he's been plugged into the mains uh, by, uh, by his hairdo at the side, but uh, if we didn't have those kind of guys, we wouldn't be talking now, and I think they just add to the rich diversity of cycling. You know, uh, where he got those gloves from, I really don't know. It looks like they're, I don't know, offcuts from a, you know, they've gotten from a paint factory where there's been a small explosion, to be honest with you, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you said that the piece reminded you of your young younger days how much is the same and how much has changed from what you've read in, in, in this piece and what you can see around you between these kind of um, young guys on the verge of, of, of potential professional careers but at, at a young age you know teenagers really yeah I think it I think essentially it's the same because it, it's a, a I love the article it's really well written um, it's it's interesting but I think the main difference for me is is the young riders and their access to everything else around them by virtue of the internet and mobile phones and stuff and so although they've been on the same journey as I have or a similar journey and they're experiencing the same feelings it's just that they've still they've got this additional contact with the outside world and this other kind of temptation you know uh, to dip in and out of, of what they're doing and, and, we, and we or I never really had that all we had was you know a a Walkman, if you were, if we were lucky, um, and and books, and and essentially that was it, and each other's company, and and, and that wasn't it. That was just the way it was, and I think now I think the contrast is, I'm really looking back at, at the the type of um, families these guys are from, what drives them, you know, uh, some guys, um, some of the Belgian guys have come from quite uh, privileged backgrounds from at the, with a real rich cycling her- heritage. One of the Belgian chaps, his uncle is Edwig van Houdonck, who Obviously, took out Tour of Flanders a couple of uh, couple of times back to back in the late eighties, and then and then one particular Belgian chap is, you know, just works on a farm, um, and the fact they've got part time jobs and, and or are still you know you know um, they've got textbooks from school uh, on the peace race with them, but I think it's just their access to the ability to call home, call the girlfriends, go on the internet, share their experiences by Instagram. Twitter, Facebook and stuff. I think that's lovely because they can share what they're doing and I never really I didn't even take a camera with me to my first international race and there was a race called the Groot Axel which is a famous junior race in Holland and that was my first exposure to riding in a big bunch and it was quite overwhelming to be honest and I crashed on, I think it was stage 3 and broke my rear derailleur off we managed to, I managed to ride to the finish on a single gear, single free gear, and then I had to go home because we had no spare bike I mean that was, things were different in the, in the, sort of, in the late 80s it's just the, the kind of relatively harsh one-star hotel conditions of living in an of, of, of I don't know sleeping and racing uh, in an ex Eastern Bloc sort of country of, uh, of, of they're in Czech aren't they here I think yeah, it's Czech uh, Republic. yeah the Czech Republic I think you learn whether this is for you I think clearly these riders through this week of racing you know some of it's the first the first big exposure to racing internationally. This is this is what it's like. You 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 grow and you mature, but essentially the pain that you experience, or the joy that you experience, is exactly the same. Um, but it's your first dip into what it's like racing abroad, being away from home. All the memories I have of my first racing experiences are in my head, and in and in the heads of my sort of friends at the time. And there's no, or there's very, there's hardly any documented evidence at all of what went on, which which is a shame. But, uh, but these guys will grow up and look back and reflect and actually see it in, in, in colour and, and on film as well, uh, which I think, I think that's the stark difference, but essentially it's the same thing. Well, let's turn to um, Guy Andrews' story, uh, which is a really interesting one, I thought, um, combining um, 
some technical geekery with some quite fundamental changes in the way that the sport is um, operating at the at the top level or increasingly now at, at um, enthusiast level. Um, this is a story about SRM power meters. Um, there are lots of pictures of how they how they're made and interviews with um, their creators. Some great story like from the early the, the early days when they were testing the whole the whole setup. Um, the box that received the information from the from the um, the spider in the in the in the crank was quite large in those days, um, early days, and uh, strapped to the uh, the handlebars of um, of one of the guys who, who who was developing it technically and fell off during one of the races that he was testing it out in and he had to sort of go back and yeah, pick it up that, and, and the guys he was racing smile. against were kind of going what's he, what's he gone back for? Yeah, that, that did make and me smile. Quite, it's quite nice that this is this um, story of a, a technology which is now ubiquitous at the top level coming from what seems like almost um, a hobby project um, you know so in like a school the, the, chemistry the, the, lab type yeah. of thing it's the brainchild of a couple of geeks and that they might be saying that it, it clearly is it's uh, you know and I think it, it stems from perhaps not just a national not so much a nationalistic mindset but you know the, uh, the social attitude of, of Germans sometimes as, as Guy says in the article they're very very direct and I think that direct approach extends to the thinking process and if they almost have a question about something they want to find an answer and clearly these two this, these guys set out to, to measure power, you know, in its purest form. And if, if they hadn't, I'm, I'm sure somebody else would have perhaps taken it up, but they were the pioneers. And when you look at reading the article, it's extremely interesting looking at the genesis of the way they measured power to where it is now, and looking at a one and a half kilogram chain set, <laughs> which you think would offset any benefits measuring the power would have. But they, they clearly wanted to do it and knew that the technology would, would advance, it become lighter and lighter, and to what it is today. And obviously there are numerous other companies you know now producing their own versions you've even got it measured in the pedal now with with garmin did you ever train with a power meter i never had one uh, and uh, i have a i have a power meter now but i've not actually calibrated it properly yet because you know riding to cafes and a bit like guy i just don't really want to measure how poor i am at the moment but uh, i i i am interested in it um very much so because it has changed the way that training is approached and also it's fundamentally changing the way people approach races. The best measure of that and the best example of that is perhaps the way Sky you know, have ridden over the last couple of when, until they, well, When Sky came onto the scene in 2010, racing on climbs was a bit of a stop-start affair. Um, although, although you had US Postal back in the day take to one side the, the, other, the darker element of it that they, that they rode as a unit, but riders could race and attack and slow down attack and slow down but now it's all about riding at a set speed that actually deters any, any attacking and riders are clearly measuring their effort you can just see by the way they don't go into the red when responding to a cli- uh, an attack on a climb for example they just gradually really back in and I think Froomey, although Froomey is far more dynamic than Brad, Brad's a good example of that, he doesn't ever panic he'll just ride back over a set period maybe just increases his wattage by, by a small amount and clearly guys more and more are using SRM uh, meters. Back to your, your first question, I've not trained with a power meter, never have. I, I raced with a, uh, a heart rate monitor through the, the early days. I did use a power meter but only in labs and I've never actually used one on the bike but I could see, I can definitely see the benefits especially from a training perspective um, and, and knowing when to rest as well, knowing when you've when, um, there's a differential between you know your heart rate and what the power you're putting. You know you could be riding at this 140 beats steady, but only putting out you know hardly any any watts at all. And it's like that's when the time is to back off and you know 
I think the only negative thing about them, if there is one, but I'm, I'm sure, again, people disagree, is the fact I, I, I like the beauty, the inherent beauty of riding on feel, because I guess that's all I had, you know. Um, but I like the unknown of riding on feel, and I, I, because I think riding on feel is an art, and I think it's part, you know, you're blessed with physical ability, you're blessed with, you know, psychological ability to deal with stress, but I also think that something that should be respected is, is, a, is a rider's own ability to understand themselves inherently and use that to best effect. I mean, the argument that's made against race radios is made also against power meters in races that um, it's detracting from the innate abilities, tactical or mental, of, of the riders and it, it somehow makes the sport less, um, less of a sport, less of a contest between individuals and more a sort of uh, corporate... Um, not in terms of companies, but in terms of um, you know a big team around a ri- uh, around a rider and a team management and that kind of thing. Do do you buy into that? I mean, it sounds like you might have a bit of sympathy for that. Would you like to see power meters banned from from races? No, not necessarily, um, because they, they clearly have a place and and they can help. I mean, I, I, but I think what they've How, done. Why, what, what is the benefit of having them in a race? I think it's just to look at what you're doing. I think it's to although you would never train you don't. Riders increasingly aren't using races as training. You know, they they'll go away for large blocks of time and train, and then hit the race. But it's also in, you want to look at what you're putting out in a race to see if your training is effective. And if you don't record what you're doing in a race, I mean, I know some riders. I don't, I couldn't, I can't particularly name any, but some riders actually don't look at the power. They'll record the power and download it later. Mm. But they see it as a limiting factor because mentally they might want to go with a move, but the data saying no, and it's it's that contradiction. Do you go against that and put yourself into the red or do you just ride in a very controlled manner and just purely look at data? And I think that's, that's, the, I think that's the, the thing where I think the beauty of racing is endangered sometimes or compromised to a degree by the fact that some riders maybe aren't doing something that's purely based on just feel and, and the romantic element. It's like, I need to chase that, I need to go with that move. I think it's great seeing riders blow up on the road after making you know, an ill-advised effort. But as you say, you know, there's a lot of money going into the sport now. The sport's becoming more and more scientific. It's been broken down into its various component parts. It's, it's understood across the board from, from aerodynamics to nutrition to the psychological to the physiological. You know, you know, now got electric gears. We're looking at, you know, measuring every single element, you know. But I think because there's a lot of money coming into the sport, you know, and you, if you break down a rider and say, well, he regularly, you know, goes into the red and gets dropped... But if you rode, if you understood yourself and what your body was doing more, you'd be more measured. Uh, so I can understand a coach or a manager of a team sitting down a young rider who's perhaps a little bit bullish and a perhaps a little bit, I don't know, just rides in a way that perhaps I used to ride when I used to waste a lot of energy. If you're looking at harnessing the best from an individual and there's a lot of money going, paying that individual and the team, then you have to look at being quite strict and also managing a way a rider rides. So I do understand it. But maybe from time to time what would be great is if we had a stage, two stages in the Giro and two stages in the Tour. There were no power meters, for example, just to mix it up a bit. And that's just me because of my purest old school kind of um, love of the, just the variables. I think what I love about the sport is the variables. And I just think it's man and machine and you just go and do it. From the point of view of a commentator, and would it be nice to have the live power data in the commentary books? 
Yeah, I, th- I think it would. I mean, uh, that just flies in the face exactly what I've just talked about as a purist of the sport. Um, as long as we had, a, you know, uh, a bit of a mix, I think to let the, t- the, the technologies there. I mean, we can learn from you know, Formula One uh, and uh, MotoGP, those sorts of sports, and how fantastic it is for the viewer. I, I know that the, the technology is there. What would be wonderful is, for example, take the Tour de France as an example. One rider from each team to 20-odd teams, 22 teams, whatever, and you have access as a viewer to look at the telemetry when you want a, a one rider by, by using your, your, your skybox and, and your, your red button. That technology is there because you, you can, you know, I know in, they're testing it in football now. You can actually flip because it's a coaching tool in football. You know, the riders and, you know, with players now, you know, when they're running around in, on the training ground, all, all their data is available on a, on a laptop. And, and we know that you can see that on a screen. It's just, I think, the UCI having, having the foresight um, and teams becoming a little bit less protective of data because I think if, if we're going to progress as a sport and, and try and blow away and get rid of this, the dark, you know, the dark side of the sport, teams need to understand they need to be far more open about what's going on behind the scenes. And I'm not, by saying that, I'm not suggesting anything bad going on behind the scenes. I just think they need to lighten up and say, you know, uh, let's see what your rides are doing because it's, it attracts more people in, it, it will make the sport far more interesting. And from a commentator's point of view, it's some really interesting talking points. But, again, I've, I've been a rider, I've also been a manager, you know, I've, I've also been on the, the organising side of races, now I'm a commentator. I'm very privileged to have this 360-degree view. So actually, in saying what I've just said, I still understand people who come back at me and say, well, no, that because we want to... You know, it's a tactical element of the sport. You want to withhold certain things so teams don't know how certain rides are doing. Because obviously, say you had telemetry on Chris Froome on a day of the tour. Obviously, the other teams are going to be looking at that telemetry and think, shit, he's been on a bad day. Let's hit him straight from the start tomorrow. So it could be used <laughs> against riders as well, but in a, in a tactical sense. So I can understand a, a little bit of reticence. But I also think that from time to time, it'd be nice to choose one rider from each team um, to look at just just to get, just so, so the viewer is is more informed, and I think that because of the amount of people watching bike racing now, I think we owe it to them because gradually people are. It's not about who's in the yellow jumper anymore. It's like they they understand, or they're starting to understand the nuanced element of the sport, the tactics, the race within a race, what affects riders, how riders are set up, and, and why you know just because one rider's fiftieth in the bunch doesn't mean he's not in the lead, all this sort of stuff. People expect a bit more, and I think as, as broadcasters uh, and as and the UCI need to wise up and actually move with the times a little bit and give people access to in, in information that's interesting and that actually starts to open up this really beautiful sport of ours. Well, Matt Stevens, thank you very much for uh, joining me on this um, on-location edition of the Ruler podcast. Thank you. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks for downloading the Ruler podcast. You can find out more about the magazine take out a subscription and read articles from the archive on the website visit www.ruler.cc and if you want to read the magazine on the ipad you'll find it in the apple itunes store the one thing i would say about the tour de france is i think it's a, a, a it's a wonderful event and i'm i'm very sorry about uh, uh, the man who cheated uh, lance armstrong I always thought he was a great writer, and I'm very disappointed that he actually cheated to achieve his accomplishment. But there was one uh, great writer named Greg LeMond who never cheated, and he won that thing six times. So I think we have to keep that in mind. There's also integrity still in the sport. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.